Well, we're going to start uh, today in verse 5 and work down to verse 8. We actually only have one more sermon after today in this letter. We've, we've been in a series through 1st and 2nd Timothy since the fall. So it's been, been a pretty decent amount of time in these two letters. And the, the overarching point of these letters uh, is really the same, although it's from different contexts. 1st um, Timothy is about how a church can find their way back to faithfulness to the gospel um, in light of uh, disobedience or bad theology or just false belief, whatever it is. Paul helps Timothy walk the church in Ephesus through those issues and, and how to establish and have health in the church. And so that's really the, the emphasis there. And 2 Timothy has a similar emphasis, but it's, it's less on the corporate church and more on the individual person. And so we're kind of looking at the same issue, but from different angles. And uh, 2 Timothy really is written by Paul at the end of his life uh, to prepare Timothy for ministry and life and, and walking with Jesus in, in the absence of the Apostle Paul. Um, you're starting to see at this point, the apostles are beginning to, to be martyred for their faith. Many of them are going to, to die by the Romans for their faith in Christ. Uh, the only one who won't uh, be mar- martyred of all the uh, apostles would be John. And John suffered greatly as well. They just didn't manage to, to kill him all the way. They tried pretty hard to do that, but they didn't succeed in that. Um, but all the other apostles are starting to die. And so now Timothy's in this kind of next generation and Paul's writing to him to say, hey, here's how you keep going. Here's how you continue to bring this message. And that's why it's in our scriptures, because we also carry on in the mission of, of Jesus um, just as they did. And so we need to hear these things too and receive them. But as we get into the, the tail end of this letter, um, we're seeing kind of Paul's final reflections and thoughts on his life and ultimately on his death. And he knows he's going to die. We're going to see that in the passage we look at. He's, he's well aware that he's not getting out of this Roman jail alive. Um, he's, he's, he's got a clear head about that. And so he's going to reflect on his life and his death. And the question is, is how, how does Paul and how do we have hope in the midst of a hard life and even our own, our own death as we will all face it one day? And, and so... We're looking at the hope of the gospel in light of those things. And I think that's, you know, it may, it may be something we don't necessarily want to think about. Um, but the book of Ecclesiastes tells us it's better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of laughter. Because that's the way of all mankind and the, and the wise will take it to heart. We, we need to recognize that as followers of Jesus, we, we have a hard life ahead of us. And that's just reality. And so we should be prepared and we should do what all, all that we can to have hope in the midst of it. So that's what we're going to look at today as we get into the text. Um, but let's start in verse 5. So verse 5 is, I think, the, the overarching summary of the whole letter. Right, this is like the kind of conclusion to what Paul wants to say on a practical doctrinal level to to Timothy. He's sort of just recapping everything he's been saying in this letter. 
Uh, and then he's going to transition into reflecting on his own experiences uh, for the rest of this letter. So look at verse 5. It says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So this is the, the recap of everything we've already seen throughout this letter. And, and he sort of just gives us four bullet points of here's what you're to do. These are the things that you should be giving your life to. These are the things that you should be helping people uh, understand as well. So be sober-minded. That's the first one. Um, some translators uh, have chosen clear-headed. Uh, some translations actually use self-controlled. And I think that that's really the, the heart of it is to be, be self-controlled, be clear-headed, be aware of what's happening and respond appropriately to, to your life and to the circumstances. Paul's already established this, the need for this in, at the beginning of this letter. In chapter 1, uh, he says in verse 7, basically at the very beginning of this letter, he says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of uh, power and love and self-control. And so he, he has already established that we have been given the Spirit to empower us, to help us to love, and to help us be sober-minded or self-controlled. So again, verse 5 is just that recap of what he's been talking about. The second thing he says is endure suffering. I don't know that there's a, a, any other singular thing that Paul spends more time on in this letter than this one endure suffering. He, most of this letter is about how to endure suffering, how to keep going towards Jesus in the midst of really hard things. We see that as uh, Nathan Duke preached uh, through eight, eight, uh, verse 8 through the end of chapter 1. It's all about Paul calling Timothy to not be ashamed of his suffering, to not be ashamed of the gospel, uh, to, not be, to not pull back from the message of the good news of Jesus just because suffering is in your face. Um, he, he talks at the beginning of chapter two about suffering as well. So we, we see this thing of enduring suffering really as a thread throughout the whole letter. But one of the things I'll just recap about this is in chapter two, Paul uses the analogy uh, of three human occupations to help us understand Christian suffering. Um, he uses the analogy of a soldier he uses the analogy of an athlete and he uses the analogy of a farmer. And uh, each of those professions or occupations are intentionally chosen by Paul because they have a degree of suffering and also a degree of reward, right? So a soldier suffers possibly to the end of his life for the greater hope of a victory for his country. An athlete suffers in bodily training for the hope of a prize as they compete. And a farmer suffers the, the, the weather conditions, the hard work, the labor, the, you know, the potential of losing their crops and their, and their flocks. But they do that work because there's a harvest, a potential harvest at the end. And so they, these, these people suffer for that. And so Paul uses that as a way to say, listen, you, you need to suffer well too. This is, this is a part of it. There's reward at the end of it, but 
but you need to suffer in the meantime and endure it. So that's the second thing. Third thing he says is do the work of an evangelist. Um, so an evangelist, uh, the word evangel uh, is the Greek word uh, for the gospel. That's where we get the word evangelical. That's where we get the word evangelistic. Uh, it's because the Greek word for gospel is euangelion. So we, as we transliterate that into English, it becomes evangel or uh, evangelical. Um, so what he's saying to Timothy is basically proclaim the gospel. Be, be clear about who Jesus is. Talk about God and the good news of the gospel through his word. And that's where we, what we saw in chapter three, the, valid, the, the vital nature of the Bible and the need for preaching the Bible is the work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus through the gospel. So that's what it means to be an evangelist. And then to fulfill your ministry is the last thing he says. And that is the whole point of this whole letter is keep going, fulfill your role. So that is the summary of 2 Timothy. Um, And each of those things that he draws out in verse 5, he has expressed in detail uh, earlier on. So uh, as we we turn now uh, to 6 and 7, before we turn to 6 and 7, let's just think about what he's saying. Essentially, the message of this letter is don't give up. Keep going keep plugging away, keep doing the work you're called to do as a, as a believer in Jesus, continue to point people to him. And, and as we embrace him more and more, we will see his work through us more and more. That's the point. So in verse six, as we get into this next paragraph, um, Paul's going to have a pretty hard shift here. He's, he's really not going to spend a lot of time talking directly to Timothy, he's going to be reflecting about his own experiences and his own life. So look at what verse 6 says. It says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So he says two things here. Uh, He says, that he is being poured out as a drink offering. We're going to talk about what that means in a, in a second. Uh, and then he says that he knows he's up. His time's up. His, his time for departure has come. He's aware of this reality that there is um, going to be a, a verdict and it's not going to end well for, for Paul in his bodily life. He, he's going to be beheaded, actually, by the Romans in just, I don't know, weeks, months. We, I, I don't really know. We don't, we're not clear on what the timeline is here. But he's aware that the time of his departure has come. And, and he's going to be beheaded because this is just sort of a historical thing. It's kind of interesting that Roman citizens were not permitted to be crucified except under the most extreme forms of, of insurrection or, or something like that. So, so they weren't going to crucify Paul, but they were still going to kill him. And, and so there's, there's a reality that he's looking at here. But let's think about what he's saying as he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. What is this? What is he referring to? Well, 
Um, if you are reading through your Bible this year, you're probably somewhere in the uh, five books of Moses. You're probably through Leviticus, maybe into Numbers or Deuteronomy or somewhere like that. But as you read through those, the law, you, you see that there's a variety of different offerings and sacrifices that are made um, in that Old Testament system. And one of these was a drink offering. A drink offering was a, uh, basically a small amount of wine or oil or both um, that would be poured out onto a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice. So you had the, the lamb or um, the, the, the heifer or whatever it was that was being sacrificed and then people would bring these wine offerings, these drink offerings, and pour that on top of this burnt sacrifice. Now, why were they doing that? Well, practically, I think it's because it created smoke and this aroma would, would fill the air. The, the, the sacrifices were referred to as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And to, to put a little bit of liquid on a fire, you know, not enough to extinguish it, but just enough to get it smoking, uh, that's probably what, what it was doing. But it's, it's very interesting here that Paul chooses to reflect on his death as a drink offering and not as a sacrifice. So, so we need to think about the difference here because Paul is clear-headed on what's happening. He, he is saying essentially um, that um, he is not really that big of a deal, which is crazy to us because Paul was like the guy, right? When we, t- when we talk about Paul, like we talk about Paul, like unfortunately, like he's almost Jesus, you know, 1.0 or, or 5 point, I don't know, whatever, 0.5. We wouldn't say he's Jesus, but we would say he's, he's close, right? Um, but, but Paul doesn't see himself that way. He sees himself as this little, fairly insignificant part of the process. He's not the burnt offering. He's not the main the main deal. He's this, this drink offering that gets poured out. Charles Spurgeon talks about this, and I think it's helpful the way he reflects on it. He, he, says, he said this, that it's beautiful to observe the way that Paul described his death in this verse. He speaks of it as an offering, but Paul does not venture to call himself a sacrifice. Christ is his sacrifice. He compares himself only to that little wine and oil that is poured out as a supplement. Not to the perfection of the sacrifice, but tolerated in performing a vow or allowed in connection with a free will offering. Paul is resolved to show his thankfulness to Christ, the great sacrifice. And he's willing that his blood should be poured out as a drink offering on the altar where, the Lord and, where his Lord and Master was the great burnt offering. So it's important that we see, that's the end of Spurgeon's quote. We, it's important that we see that Paul's not, you know, having delusions of grandeur here. He's not sitting in this Roman cell thinking, man, I'm just the best and I'm going to die to prove that I'm the best. He doesn't have this martyr's complex. Um, he just simply is going, the, the time is up. My, you know, my card's being punched. God's ready for me to come home to him. And, uh, and Christ has already sacrificed himself fully and completely for me. So all I have to do is just be this little drink offering that's poured out. It's vital to see that Paul is not calling his death a sacrifice. So 
this is one of the things that we, we could get tripped up on. If we think of somebody like the Apostle Paul or any of the apostles and their death or any Christian who dies because of their faith in Christ, a martyr, if we see that as a sacrifice, um, I think we're missing the point. Because there is nothing that we can do in life or in death to accomplish a right standing before God. Our right standing before God is always and only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice he made for us. And so even if we were to be brought to to our death because of Jesus, which hopefully none of us will, right? Hopefully, but that if it happened, we, need to, we don't need to look at this as going, well, I'm just laying down my life for the, for the sacrifice that is needed to be made. Like that is not how Paul is looking at his own death. He's just seeing himself as a, as a small supplemental part of the great sacrifice of Christ. When you turn to um, Hebrews chapter 10, we actually get a, a, a kind of a theological explanation of of the sacrificial system and what, um, and what it means as we look at Jesus as the sacrifice. So I just want to take us there for a minute um, just to kind of get, us, get this in front of us. Um, verse uh, 1 through 10 of Hebrews 10 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that the the law, the Old Testament sacrificial system doesn't actually bring anybody into salvation. It, It can't do that. It can't make you perfect. It's a shadow it's to point us to something else. So a shadow, if you're out in the sun and you have a shadow cast on the ground from your body, that may take the shape of your body to some degree, but you would all know that that shadow is not you. That's not the substance of who you are. That's just a little shadowy figure of of your shape. That's all it is. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says about the law. It's this shadow of the true things that were to come, but it's not the true substance. It's not the full reality. That's Christ. So these same sacrifices continually offered every year cannot make perfect those who draw near to them. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? So he's basically asking this logical question. Hey, if the sacrifices actually work to take away your sins... Why would you have to do it again the next year? You wouldn't. But, verse 3, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It, It draws us back to our need for Jesus to be our true sacrifice. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, Sacrifices, he said, sacrifices and offerings have not, you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. 
as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When Jesus said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have all been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So you see what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. There is nothing we can add to the sacrifice of Jesus. There's no need to have him be re-sacrificed again and again. It's once and for all. He's accomplished the work. He did what the law could never do. He accomplished salvation for us once and for all. So Paul is not in any delusional state of thinking that his death is some kind of sacrifice. It's not. Jesus is his sacrifice. He's just being poured out like a drink offering. It's a pretty small and insignificant thing comparatively. And that's the point. That's what Paul, Paul just being the, the humble, Christ-loving man that he is, is like, I'm not, the, I'm not that big of a deal here. My time's up, and that's okay. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. So he says, I've, I've done what Christ has called me to do, and, I, and I'm going to go to him. Now, Um, look at what verse 8 says. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, Here's something that I think is helpful. Um, When we read passages like this, like verse 7, where the Apostle Paul can say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, we might be tempted to think in, in, in these things as we read these things that somehow he just mustered up the strength to do it and that, I, and that we just aren't ever going to be as good as him. And that we just can't see ourselves in the same boat. I think there's a danger for us potentially to think that we have to somehow be the best kinds of Christians to earn the crown that Christ is giving to Paul. But that's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. He says, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord will award me on that day. So here's what Paul's saying. We can't actually finish the race, run the course, do this, accomplish this, except that Jesus did for us. We can't actually get that crown of righteousness except that the Lord earned it for us. Because Jesus sacrificed himself for our sins and because he loved us and loved Paul, he knew and he had hope that his final destination is this crown of righteousness. What is he talking about here? 
Well, this crown of righteousness is Jesus's perfect righteousness given to him by faith and given to us by faith. What Paul is saying is not that he's somehow earned a righteous standing before God, but that he has already been given a righteousness before God by faith, that this now crown that he's going to receive will represent the fullness of it in his life. He's going to finally get the reward that Christ had already purchased for him. He's going to finally experience it and know it and have it fully. But, but Paul doesn't think here that he's somehow earning this righteousness. It's not being earned. It's given to him. He know, he, he's taught this. Like, so turn to Romans chapter 3 if you have a Bible. If otherwise, you can just listen. But Romans 3, 21 and 22. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. See that? So the righteousness of God is for all who believe. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, he says it here as well. He says it, uh, let me get there real quick. Whoops. It's right before Colossians. There we go. All right. He says, and being found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is not contradicting himself. He's, he wrote those words. He's, he's writing these words. He knows that his righteousness, his standing before God as a righteous person is because Christ accomplished righteousness for him and that has been applied to him by faith. So that is true and it's his. But as he goes to meet the Lord in, in person face to face, he will be crowned with that righteousness. One day, Jesus will give all of us who believe in him the crown of righteousness, which is the ultimate and permanent state of righteousness. Theologian Gordon Fee said, said it this way. He says that one receives the crown of righteousness precisely because one has already received the righteousness of Christ. Paul's not saying that his death is going to earn righteousness. He's saying he's already received it, but now he will be crowned with it. It's, it's kind of the analogy of the wedding ring, right? We, we wear wedding rings when we're married, um, not because that's what makes us married, but because that's what tells people that we're married and reminds us that we're married, right? That's the thing. Like taking off a ring doesn't, stop you from being married. It just, you know, takes away that reminder or whatever. Like, it's fine not to wear a wedding ring if you're married and you know you're married and you're committed to that, great, right? It's not, the substance of your marriage is not in the ring. The ring is just a reminder, a, a tangible physical picture of that reality. 
So Paul says that the righteousness of Christ that he has earned, not earned, but been given rather by faith because Christ earned righteousness for him is now being crowned on him. He's being given that righteousness. So as Paul says, this is his hope that it's been laid up for him, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award me on that day. But not only to me, also to all who have loved his appearing. That means you and I get to be in on this too. But let's spend just a couple minutes thinking about the phrase he uses here, this crown of righteousness. Why is he honing in on that? Right, so he's, he's about to die. Right? He's about to go and be with Jesus. There are so many things that he's going to experience in that moment. He's going to have final glory. He's going to be glorified, right? The, the fullness of what he was uh, meant to be it will be finally experienced in this Romans 8, right? We are, we're foreknown, predestined, called, sanctified, and glorified. Why doesn't he call this a crown of glory? Why doesn't he call this a crown of love? He'll finally be able to see love in person, face to face. Why not focus on that? Why righteousness? It's interesting. And I think the answer is, is that righteousness is actually the greatest need that every sinful human has. It's the singular thing that we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot earn righteousness. We cannot be deserving of righteousness. And so Paul is looking forward to this crown of righteousness. Why? Because everything else, love, glory, fullness, all all of these, everything else is going to flow from that. All the other crowns, so to speak, come from the crown of righteousness. And so as Paul looks down the, the, the pipeline here and sees his impending death, he's not fearful. He's not in despair. He's, he's looking with hope and going, this is actually what this means. I will have a crown of righteousness the righteousness of Jesus that is already his by faith will be finally and permanently his to experience. So I was reminded of this as I, as I worked through this. Of, of, um, there's an old catechism from the Reformation um, called the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, and it's used by some reformed uh, circles of churches, but... One of the first, the first question in that uh, catechism, so a catechism is a question and answer tool. Right? It asks a question and then there's an answer to help us learn our theology. But the first question is, what is your only hope in life and death? And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. 
In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Christ by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's an amazing answer. It's a long answer, but it's an amazing answer. What is our only hope in life and death? That we're not our own, but we belong to Jesus who died for us and set us free. That's what Paul's looking at. That's, that's how Paul's operating. It's how all really functionally Christians operate, should be operating all the time. Now, we ha- we'll have weak moments and we'll have struggles in that, of course, but, but our, our ultimate hope as Christians is not that I've done enough or that I've been good enough or that I've loved enough or that I've even had enough faith. Faith, I don't think, is a quantifiable thing. It's, it's a seed that God casts into the soil and it grows. So we can put so much pressure on ourselves to think, I have to do this. Paul is sitting in a jail cell resting in the fact that he is going to receive a crown of righteousness that is unearned and undeserved because Jesus Christ paid for every sin he committed and he's done that for you and me. And God continues in our life to care for us all the way to the end. So I've said this a bunch of times and I'll say it again. This is just, I'm your pastor, I love you. Here's, here's what you need to hear. You're okay in Jesus. You're okay in Jesus. When God looks at you as you stand in Jesus, he doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as a righteous child of his. He sees you as he sees Jesus. That, that shift in mentality changes everything. It should change everything. It should motivate us to want to live for him now and forever. But, but we don't have to earn it. We don't have to deserve it. We don't have to be impressive to him. We don't have to prove anything because Jesus Christ was the one who lived a perfect life. And then he went to a cross to die in our place for our sins. And he rose again from the dead to conquer all of life's and sin's trials. And he destroyed death and sin and the devil through that work. We get, we get to stand in Jesus and be okay. That's the best news we can hear. So as the Apostle Paul spends these last words. Next week, we'll wrap up this, this letter. But as, we, as he looks down the barrel of his own impending death and he sees what's ahead, he focuses on that which will be of ultimate hope for him. He sees how Jesus endured so that he could endure. He sees how Jesus endured the cross, stood in our place for our sins, took the shame that we deserved, took the hostility that people had towards him, was rejected by his 
loved ones suffered physically on the cross. All of these things he endured so that we can endure to the end. And that is our hope, that we throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ, his righteousness for us, given to us by faith. So let me pray for you, and then we'll, we'll uh, conclude our service through some singing and partaking of the table today. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you are our only hope in life and death, that you are a faithful Savior, that you have paid for all of our sins with your precious blood, that you've set us free, and that you watch over us now, even now, with all of our struggles, with all of our ongoing sins. You don't lord or hold those things over our heads, but you, you look at us as if we're perfect as we stand in you. Lord, we can't even wrap our heads around that. But would you help our hearts to believe it? Would you help us to rest today knowing that we're okay in Jesus? Would you give us hearts for you and a heart to continue to desire to live for you? So we pray these things and we pray that as we enter this time of worship through singing, through giving, through the Lord's table, that all the things that we do and sing and, and, uh, and think about in these next minutes would bring you glory and drive our hearts closer to the hope we have in you. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.